us that there are only two religions in the whole world. Only two. No matter what they're called, there are only two. That of human achievement and that of divine accomplishment. Either you are working to earn something from a God or God has accomplished something on your behalf. And in Christ, we see a religion that does not fail because it is one that is accomplished by God. Whereas every other religion is really just one and the same, a system of human achievement. And so when the one religion fails, and it always fails, we have nowhere to go but the Lord who is our salvation. Follow along with me as I read Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8 to you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as this church in Colossae was a church marked by love, so we desire to be a church marked by love. Because you are love. You are the, the supreme embodiment of what it means to, to love, to pursue another's good, to, uh, to act in ways that, uh, that build us. And so, Lord, may we be a community that is loving towards one another, towards, towards the world, that we would always seek people's good and that we would ultimately seek it in Christ. Lord, we want to pray not only for ourselves today, but for the Walla Walla Valley Cowboy Church and for Ron, their pastor. And Lord, as they seek to, uh, to reach out to the valley with the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, we ask that they would be faithful to the gospel, that we would as well that you would, by your spirit, uh, empower their evangelism and call people to yourself. And we ask the same for ourselves as well. Lord, we pray for us and them that, that there would always be an understanding that diverse churches are, are healthy churches. That You have made us a body comprised of individual parts, each part being different. And Lord, we want unity as a church, not, not uniformity. Lord, if all of us were the same, most of us would be unnecessary. But because you have made each and every one of us different and, uh, and having different gifts and to reflect you and your character and your nature uh, differently, we ask that we would be unified and, you, and united as a church and that they would as well. Lord, we, I pray that you would see that it takes all of us and all of our differences as they're conformed into godliness and according to your character to even begin to grasp who you are. And that what is good in all of us, what you are doing in all of us to, to, to make your image in us more clear, 
that, that all of those things reflect you and that we need not be the same. Lord, we have much to pray for uh, for missionaries today. Lord, we think of uh, Donnan uh, Neelan. Lord, I don't know if I've got his name right, but you know who he is as he uh, steps in with uh, InterVarsity at Whitman in, uh, in Jess's place. Lord, we, we praise you for her and for the ministry that she had here and uh, for her as she seeks uh, continuing education. Lord, we pray that you would bless her in that endeavor, but that you would also use it for your glory. Lord, we praise you for the eight student leaders uh, that there are at Whitman and for the prayer meeting of staff and student leaders that takes place regularly. Father, we pray that you would give them great faithfulness to you and to the gospel and a great witness on that campus. Lord, we ask uh, with them as, as their classes are returning to in-person instruction uh, that there would be rhythms of Bible reading and prayer built into the lives of those who know you there and that they would uh, lean on you and trust you in faith by prayer and by reading your word. Lord, we pray that there would be a culture of invitation and evangelism there as well, not only among those students and those student leaders, but, but among us. Lord, we pray for Skip and Ruth Sorensen as uh, there's concern where they live for unfair elections and that it's causing unrest there. Lord, we pray for peace. We pray for uh, a great trust in your people, that you are God, that you are sovereign, that as we read in your word, every leader and ruler is there by your sovereign decree because you are working out your plans in the world even when we don't understand them. And Lord, may there be some lessons built into those prayers for us as well. Lord, we also think of uh, some missions partners of ours who we can't name, but who have uh, experienced earthquakes and tsunami warnings and are seeking to meet the needs of the people uh, there where they minister. Father, we ask that you would give them great opportunity to, uh, to show and to tell the gospel there. Lord, may the word sound forth from them, from us, from Walla Walla uh, Valley Cowboy Church, out not only into uh, Walla Walla and to the valley, but to the ends of the earth. Lord, as we turn now to your word, give us open eyes and soft hearts to receive your word and to obey it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to share something with you that, um, that I read this week. It's only a part of it, but uh, this is from a, a pastor who I really appreciate, a Presbyterian pastor named Kevin DeYoung, and he wrote an article at the Gospel Coalition website called Come, Let Us Reason Together. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to give a warning here, as I had done previously, and that is I normally don't like to read long quotes, as they can be hard to follow, but I think this was worth reading and provides a great introduction into our text today. Here's what he said in this article. He said, the church is divided as never before. Okay, that may be an overstatement. But I think most Christians would agree that from personal conversations and from social media scrolling, it certainly feels like the divisions are as bad as ever and only getting worse. The church has been divided over doctrine before, sometimes for bad reasons, often for good reasons. That is to be expected. What seems new in our day is how Bible-believing Christians who share almost all the same doctrine on paper are massively and increasingly divided over non-doctrinal matters, torn apart by issues the Bible does not directly address. Think of the three most contentious issues in the church over the past year. Racial tensions, COVID restrictions, 
and the presidential election. On each of these matters, Christians have disagreed not just on interpretation or strategy or where the slopes are most slippery. We have fundamentally disagreed on the facts themselves. And because we disagree on the facts, we disagree even more profoundly on the appropriate response. Is America deeply and pervasively racist? Are people of color routinely and disproportionately in danger of being killed by police officers? Is virtually every aspect of our society hostile to the presence of black and brown bodies? If you answer yes to all of these questions, that is, if you believe the facts warrant all these conclusions, then how can you not be engaged in peaceful protest? For the church to ignore injustice on this level is to be guilty of indifference at best and moral turpitude at worst. But if our society and our policing is not fundamentally racist, then much of the social justice movement is motivated by false uh, premises. What about COVID? If the facts tell us that this is a a once-in-a-century pandemic, that we are facing 300,000 excess deaths, and that masks are a simple and effective way to limit the spread of the virus, then extreme care and caution are important ways we can love our neighbors as ourselves. If, on the other hand, coronavirus is hardly more dangerous than the seasonal flu, then the worldwide restrictions look rather onerous, if not outright nefarious. And what about the election? Setting aside the question of whom to vote for, we are now divided over who people actually did vote for. If the election was stolen, perversely overriding the will of most Americans in an act of unconscionable thievery, then we should be marching peacefully until we are blue in the face. But if the facts do not support that conclusion, then we help no one by pretending that the loser of the election actually won. In each set of issues, you can see why the stakes are so high and why the emotions run even higher. If things are as dire as some purport on race with COVID and with a disputed election, then to do nothing displays a cowardly and colossal failure of nerve. But if in each situation things are much less dangerous and less insidious than the doomsday sayers say, then taking a full body chill pill would be the better part of valor. So what are Christians to do? Of course, he goes on from there, and I'll let you read that article, and I'm not endorsing uh, any of his conclusions necessarily, but I think he poses some great questions. What are Christians to do? If an election was stolen, what are Christians to do? If not, what are Christians to do? If COVID is exceedingly deadly or not, what are Christians to do? If masks are helpful or not, what are Christians to do? If there is systemic racism in the world, what are Christians to do? I think he's right in that, at least in our lifetimes, the church is more divided than any other time. And as as a body, we've seen these issues divide us. And for most of us, maybe more so for everybody here than for me, 
It, it's heartbreaking. Not that I don't care about these things, but, but I don't have the length of emotional and spiritual investment uh, at Trinity that you do. And so uh, as much as you all are dear to my heart already, there's just something that time does that makes these things heartbreaking. Leaders have stepped down in our church over these issues. Families are leaving the church over these issues. Others are refusing to come to church until things are done their way. So we come back to the question, what are we supposed to do? Well, Kevin DeYoung's answer in his article is, let us reason together. And he, um, he's right in that sense. And, and I'm not going to go off on, on all of what he says there. But here's the thing. What is it that we are to reason together upon? We could reason together on race issues profitably. We could reason together on COVID issues profitably. We could reason together on election issues profitably. But none of that reasoning, none of that reasoning would be so profitable as if we were to reason together upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, you might start thinking at this point, Logan, you're a one-trick pony. All you do is talk about the gospel. And I would say, you are right. Because all of our problems, whether they be relational, emotional, societal, or, or any other problem, they are all matters of sin. And sin only has one solution. A pastor, I really appreciate how a parishioner come to him and say, Pastor, all you ever do is talk about the gospel. And in a very joking way, joking way, retelling the story, he says, that's right, sinner, and when you get a new problem, I'll get a new solution. That's kind of funny, but it's kind of true as well. Division is a sin problem. Ignorance is a sin problem. Stubbornness is a sin problem. Making my preferences matters of right and wrong is a sin problem. Fear is a sin problem. Misplaced hope is a sin problem. And the gospel is the answer to all of our problems. In fact, the gospel is the answer to all of these problems the gospel demands justice as it declares that God was just in punishing our sins. The gospel demands unity as we see in it that God has united us together with Christ. I want to pause on that thought for just a moment, if I may. The gospel demands unity because God has united us in Christ. Even if you disagree with somebody in this room about matters of justice, ethnicity, masks, COVID, the election, which political party to vote for, what kind of car to drive for all I care, you have more in common with that believer in Jesus Christ than what separates you. In fact, as we send out missionaries into the world who go to other cultures and other places and other countries and they share the gospel, and as people believe in Christ, 
We have more in common with those people who we've never met and don't even speak the language than your unsaved neighbor who likes all the same things you do. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you have more in common with any other believer than what separates you because you both know that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. You both know that He reigns over all things. You know that He became part of His creation, being born of a virgin. You know that He suffered and died to take the consequences for our sin. You know that He was resurrected three days later. You know that He saves all who trust in Him. You know that He has united us in one body in Christ. You know that someday you are going to die of something and that when you do, you will enter a joyous eternity with Christ. Brothers and sisters, I ask you this question, what do we have to be divided about? Nothing. Even if we disagree, what do we have to be divided about when we have Christ in common? The gospel also demands peace because God made peace by his own blood. And the gospel demands grace because God delights to give us every good thing. And that's where Paul begins this letter. As an apostle of Christ, by the will of God, he, he blesses this church in Colossae with this wish, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And I think it begs the question right from the start or I guess what it should say is not really so much a question, but a statement. If this is Paul's wish for Colossae, it is Paul's wish for us. Not just that we would receive grace from God, but that we would be gracious to others. Not just that we would receive peace from God, but that we would be peacemakers towards others. I hope, I pray that we would be a church that would delight to be a blessing to others, or maybe even not just as a church as a whole, I pray that each of us would, as individual believers, would delight more in being a blessing than being blessed. When we stay home, stay separate, refuse to participate in the body of Christ, because things aren't going our way, we are fundamentally saying, I will not be a blessing to the church until the church first blesses me. That's not how God works. I pray that we would be peacemakers even when we're genuinely and truly wronged. And Paul starts out his letter by, by telling God, or by telling the Colossians how he is thankful for them to God when he prays for them. And so we see in this seven glorifying, glorious rather, and unifying truths about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to look at today. And these are my prayer today for Trinity Walla Walla, that we would be a church like the Colossians, that we would, with Paul, be able to give thanks for these seven things among us. But as Paul teaches us these seven and glorifying, or glorious and unifying truths about the gospel, I think we have much to learn here. And so the first one, I think we actually have that statement. Oh, I put them all together. There we go. Seven uh, glorious and unifying truths about the gospel. Number one, the gospel is believed for salvation. 
the gospel is believed for salvation. Look with me at verse 3 and the first part of verse 4. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. The gospel is not received by works or by payment. It cannot be earned. It can only be received. And Paul does not here offer thanks for what the Colossians had done. He doesn't offer thanks for what he had done. He offers thanks to God for what God had done. And what was he thankful for? He was thankful that they had believed. I was at a conference one time, and uh, one of the speakers got up on, on the stage, and he explained how the, the person who had uh, come up with the idea for this conference and planned it and executed it and led it, uh, he, was, he just explained all of these things that this, this guy had done. And he said, I am thankful for, or I'm thankful to, and I thought he was going to say Rick Holland. That's the name of the guy who planned the event, and he didn't. It, it, it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks in this, as he said it, because it was so far outside of what I expected. He said, I am so grateful to God for what he has done through Rick. It wasn't Rick who got the glory. It wasn't Rick who did the work. It wasn't Rick who deserved any praise. It was what God was doing through them. And Paul does something very similar here. I'm thanking God because of your faith. But faith is not a thing that they had done. It's something that God had done in them. It wasn't something that they had produced. It was something that God had produced in them. And by the way, one of the things we need to understand as we think about the gospel being believed for salvation is that faith is not merely intellectual assent. Faith is a matter of the head and the heart. It's something somebody does with their whole life, not just with what they think. In modern English, faith and belief have been relegated to headwords. To say you believe is akin to saying you think. To saying that you, you have faith is, is akin to saying you, you believe some, or you think something to be true. But it, it's much more than that. Uh, John Payton was a missionary from Scotland to the New Hebrides, which is modern-day uh, Vanuatu. And as he was translating the scriptures to them, he, he was translating the, the New Testament, and he came to the word faith, and he didn't really know what the word in, in their language was for that. And so he was sitting in his office, in a hut really probably, uh, sitting in a chair as he was translating, and one of the tribesmen who had come to know Christ walked by, and he asked, what am I doing? Well, you know, ideally, I mean, immediately we think he was sitting there, but he was doing much more than just sitting. As you sit there, you don't just think that the chair can support you. You put full faith and confidence in the chair as you sit down. It is a trusting, it is a deep-seated understanding that when we lean upon something, it will hold us up. And this, biblically, is what faith is. It's not merely an intellectual ascent that, I, that says, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. It is a whole heart, whole life, whole head trust. And by the way, uh, faith, uh, subjectively, I mean, just faith for the sake of faith isn't a virtue. Faith for the sake of faith isn't a virtue. This is a common day understanding in the world that we live. 
There are people who out there who believe that no matter what you believe, no matter what God you believe in, no matter who you serve or how you think one is saved or not saved or anything else, if you just have faith, you'll be saved. It's, it's faith for the sake of faith, as though faith in and of itself is a virtue, but it's not. It's not, it's not a subjective experience of faith that, that saves us. It is an objective faith. It is outside of us. It is not faith that is powerful. It is Christ that is powerful. We don't sing that faith is our salvation. We sing that the Lord is our salvation. And so notice that he doesn't just say, we're thankful for your faith. No, he, he is plainly clear to the church in Colossae, as Paul writes this, what he is thankful for. He is thankful for the faith that they have in Christ Jesus. Where is your faith placed? Is your faith placed in the sake of faith for faith's sake? Is your faith placed in your attendance at church? Is your faith placed in yourself and your goodness? Or is your faith placed in Jesus Christ? And, and is that faith a wholehearted trust of him and not merely intellectual assent? If you have not trusted Christ today, that's my favorite word, modern day correlation for faith. Because it's not just do you think Christ is who he says he is? But have you trusted Christ's death and resurrection as the covering for all that you have done wrong? If not, I hope you would do so today. I promise we are going to move much quicker through these remaining six points. Number two, the gospel's byproduct is love. The, the gospel is believed for salvation, but the gospel's byproduct is love. Faith produces that love. Faith produces love. It's that simple, and it's not optional. Uh, Paul thanks God since he has heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. First John in chapters 2, 3, and 4 is very clear that love for others is one of the greatest evidences of one's faith. Uh, biblically, by the way, love is not defined by what it feels Biblically, love is always defined by what it does. We've probably all read 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, and so on and so forth. It's harder to see in English, but in Greek, all 15 descriptions of love in 1 Corinthians 13 are verbs. There's not a single noun in the bunch. When Scripture defines how God loves for us, it at times defines how he feels about us, but always describes what he does for us. Love is always defined by how God loves, and it is always in action. It is pursuing someone else's good at your own expense. God's ultimate display of love is not how he feels about us, but that he gave Christ to die in our place and at great personal expense redeemed us from the sinfulness of our choices. If you have trusted in Jesus, if you have believed, you will love others. Maybe not always in feeling, but certainly in deed. And I think it's important for us to note, having posed some of these questions, that their love was indiscriminate. 
Notice that they had faith and love, faith in Christ and love for all the saints. They loved other believers of every skin color. They loved other believers of every political party. They loved believers that wore masks and believers that did not. Their love was not predicated upon agreement, but upon Christ. Because the gospel produces love for one another. The gospel is believed by faith. Its byproduct is love. And the gospel brings hope. The gospel brings hope. Look at verse 5. Because you have heard of Christ and you love each other because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Because of the hope. There was certainty. This is not subject, again, not subjective hope. Paul's not talking about a feeling that they have. He's talking about objective hope, the certainty of their future. It is hope that is laid up for them in heaven. It is, it is certain and it is sure. It's not wishful thinking like, I hope I win the lottery. There's a lot of people hoping to win the lottery right now. It is certainty that God has secured our future in Christ. If faith looks back and trusts what Christ did in the present or in the past and love acts in the present, hope looks to the future because of what God has secured for us. Notice the triad here that we see all over scripture. We see it in 1 Corinthians 13. We see it in 1 Thessalonians chapters 1 and 5 and that is that there is faith hope and love. He thanks God for their faith in what Christ had done in, their, in the past, their love for one another in the present, and their hope in what God has secured for us in the future. Why is the gospel of Jesus Christ the supreme message that the world and the church needs to hear? Because it covers our past with the death of, of Jesus. It frees us to love in the present, and it secures, secures our future with certainty. Fourthly, the gospel beckons to others. The gospel is believed for salvation. Its byproduct is love. It brings hope, but it beckons to others. Notice verse 6, that this gospel that they had heard that produced faith and love and hope, it has come to them. It has come to them as indeed in the whole world. Jesus said it this way, nobody takes a light and covers it with a bushel, but it is put out there for all to see. The gospel produces love and therefore it beckons to others. It calls others to come, to believe, to be forgiven, to be reconciled. Paul had never met the church in Colossae. He had never been there, but they had heard the gospel. Why? Because Epaphras, probably in Ephesus, heard the gospel, and upon hearing it, he said, I've got a hometown 10 miles away from here that needs to hear this message. And he went there, he shared the gospel, and he beckoned them to come to Christ. Paul never had been to Colossae, but Paul preached in Ephesus, Ephesus preached in Colossae, and 2,000 years later, somebody at some point down an unbroken chain of gospel proclaimers told it to you. The gospel was meant to spread. It wasn't meant to be hidden. 
It was meant to go out and to call others to believe and to trust. And you and I are the ones who are called to spread it. Beloved, your neighbors need Jesus. Your coworkers need Jesus. Your friends need Jesus. And there's a warning here. The, the caution is that we can never replace the message of come to Jesus with come to my church. Now, come to my church is not a bad message. It's just not enough. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in your garage makes you a Cadillac. The message we proclaim is not the church can save you. The message we proclaim is that Jesus can. But, but how do I do that, Logan? I'm scared. I'm scared that I might not know the right thing to say, or I'm scared that I might have a, they might have a question I don't have an answer to, or I'm scared I just might be rejected. It's okay to be scared. It's just not okay to be silent. But here's a few real life tips that, uh, that I've seen uh, work in the lives of others. Maybe one will encourage a thought in you. Take a coworker to coffee and ask them what makes them tick. Then tell them what makes you tick. Be sure the answer to that is Jesus. <laughs> Invite them to dinner. Get to know them. Ask them to read through the Gospel of Mark and to get together regularly to talk about it. Here's a real one. Rent a room at your office, have snacks, and tell people your testimony. Start a prayer meeting in your workplace. All of these are real examples of how people have taken opportunities to share your faith. Pastor Chris is teaching a class right over here right now on how to share your faith with others. But those who have been saved... Those who, who have faith, hope, and love invite others to be saved as well. Fifthly, the gospel broadens God's kingdom. The gospel beckons to others, and as it does, as it calls others to believe, it broadens the kingdom. When we share the gospel, people are believed, they're saved, they get baptized, and the church grows. This is what it means when in verse 6 he says that the gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. I'll tell you what, if you can, well, <laughs> there's no if, it's all over the place. You can make a fortune as a Christian author telling others how to grow a church. It's not that hard to do, right? We'll get rid of the pulpit. We'll get rid of the instruments. We'll put in a wrestling ring or we'll put in a movie theater or we'll, we'll put, I mean, you can put on a show. You can try and out Hollywood, Hollywood, and people will flock to your church like crazy. But again, coming to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being a, standing in a garage makes you a Cadillac. What works in the gospel, or what works in the church, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel and what God has done that came to them. It is the gospel that needs to go out into the whole world. It is the gospel that bears fruit and increases. The church today is obsessed with the pragmatic. You can buy books on how to build a church that unbelievers to come to, uh, love to come to. You can buy books and, and courses on how to triple your attendance by Sunday using social media. You can uh, find companies that will promise your website will attract twice as many visitors per, per year or, or things that say that if you have the right church signs, right church security, safe enough children's ministry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can, you can build a church, you can grow a church. But how does the kingdom actually grow? 
It actually grows by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has done to those who don't believe. You will not have a 100% success rate. Jesus did not have a 100% success rate. Jesus fed the 5,000, which was a crowd more about the size of 15,000. They were only counting men. He preached the gospel, and when he was done, he had 12 people left. And he looked at them, and he said, are you going to leave too? And they said, where are we going to go? You alone have the words of salvation. Jesus' success rate at the feeding of the 5,000 was eight one-hundredths of one percent. If Jesus was not a 100% effective evangelist, we shouldn't expect ourselves to be either. But again, the point is not that we can't be scared. The point is that we cannot be silent. The real question before us is, are you willing to share even when, is, when the gospel is rejected so that someone might believe? Because the reality is, as we go out into the world, as we rub shoulders with coworkers, family, friends, neighbors, hell is hot and eternity is a long time, and we have the answer. If you went home tonight and you watched the news, and the headline uh, story was that somebody all the way going back to March in the U.S. had a cure for COVID and didn't tell anyone, would you be pleased by that headline? Or would it anger you? I certainly would be frustrated. Wait a minute, we've, we've done all this to businesses, to people, to schools, to children's, to the economy, and there was a cure all the way from the beginning? Oh, how infinitely bigger is the problem if we have the answer, the cure in Jesus Christ for an eternal hot hell and hoard it without telling others. We meet people where they're at and we tell them about Jesus and the kingdom grows. Sixthly, the gospel builds the church. It is believed for salvation. Its byproduct is love. It brings hope, it beckons to others, it broadens the kingdom, but it builds the church as well. The gospel is not just for those outside the church, the gospel is for those inside the church. It's how a church not only gets larger in terms of numbers, but how a church gets deeper in terms of its understanding of, of Jesus Christ. The gospel doesn't just grow a church, it builds it up. Notice that the gospel was bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel had brought them to Christ, but was also building them up in Christ. It was working not only in the, them, but also in the world, and it was working since the day they heard. The gospel never stopped working among them, and the gospel doesn't stop working among us. It isn't just for those who have never heard of Jesus. It is for those who want to grow. A church can never and must never think that it moves beyond the gospel. Anyone who says that they're mature enough to have moved beyond the gospel of Jesus Christ is only showing how immature they are. This is such good news. I hope this is incredibly good news to us. Why is this incredibly good news? Because the church does not have to pit uh, outreach against discipleship. You don't have to choose as to whether or not you want to be a church that reaches non-believers or a church that builds up the saints. Why not? Because the gospel does both. 
And it works. It may not fill up a room as fast as we would like it to, but it works in God's way and in his timing. And the church must do both. We must gather and hear the gospel and the word and sing and encourage one another to love and good works and go out and share the gospel with others. The gospel broadens the kingdom, but it also builds the church. And lastly, and maybe most importantly, the gospel is because of grace. The gospel is because of grace. Verse 7. Just as you learned it from, uh, I'm sorry, uh, end of verse 6. I think I got the wrong uh, number there. The gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. What is it that they understood? They understood the grace of God. They, under, they understood God's unmerited favor towards them. We don't deserve it. We cannot earn it. But God delights to give it. Salvation is entirely by God and all of grace. May we be a church that faithfully proclaims the gospel to believers and non-believers alike. Lord, may we be true to your gospel. May we be true to proclaim not our merit, not our goodness, not our faithfulness, not anything but what Jesus Christ has done for us. Lord, may it be that uh, as we explore your word and are faithful to the gospel week in, week out, as, as individual believers day in and day out, may it serve to build us up. And may we, even if it's with trepidation and fear, Take seriously the call to go out into the world and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we proclaim what he has done in becoming one of us, living perfectly on our behalf, dying in our place, resurrected three days later, offering us life, as we go out and proclaim that message, as we proclaim him crucified, may people believe and trust and repent and be built up in their faith. Father, thank you that, the, that, that we never can move on between, beyond the gospel, but that it calls sinners to become saints and it calls saints to become like you. And may you do great things in and among us for your glory, for the salvation of the lost, and for the good of your people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Good morning, Trinity. I'm Dwayne Weston. I'm uh, one of the elders here at Trinity. And uh, Logan, wow, 